The 2020 election is rapidly approaching and capturing the attention of both voters and markets. As we get closer to election day, one major question is, how will it affect the markets? In a recent series of blogs and a white paper, our research team analyzed the ways the election could play out and what the consequences would be for taxes, for the economy, for assets like stocks and bonds, and for different sectors. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Pulse, where we cover trends in the economy, markets, and asset allocation for long-term investors. I'm Matt Palazzolo, and joining me today for this conversation are Alex Shaloff and Beata Kerr, co-heads of investment strategies here at Bernstein. So Alex and Beata, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. So guys, let's get started. And I think it's safe to say that politics are certainly contentious today. And increasingly, as, as I know, the three of us get out and we talk to our clients and, and we know that other investors feel the same way, the way that they lean politically certainly affects how these investors believe the market will ultimately play out post the election. And, and I'm in New York, and so it's a, a little bit more, I don't want to say the bubble, but we, we more or less all feel a similar way here. But Beata, you're in the Midwest. Alex, you're out in California. It's, it's different outside of New York. I don't know how different it is, Matt. Speaking from Los Angeles, it still feels pretty stressful uh, back and forth out here as well. And I would say the Midwest is certainly one big region of the country with a number of hotly contested battleground states. So I happen to be in Chicago, but I do speak to our clients across the country. And uh, I think you said it well. This is the front and center topic of the day in all of our client conversations. So looking forward to having this conversation. So often when we get into um, times like these where there's a risk event either occurring or about to occur, like an election, Investors tend to look at history as a guide to put it into context. So maybe, Beata, let's start with you. How do elections usually impact the markets? Well, Matt, I'm glad we're starting with history, which I do agree is the right baseline to have the conversation. Now, throughout this conversation, we're going to comment on where there are areas in today's environment that may differ from history. So I want everybody that's listening now to continue to pay attention because we're not going to say everything is the same as the past, but we still want to look at history as the baseline. So look, let's start with some grounding facts. Over the past 80 years, stocks have done almost identically over time under Democratic and Republican presidents. Looking at the indices, 9.2% a year under Democrats, 9.1% a year under Republicans. We look at that as identical. I do want to get the facts out that there is a 0.1% difference, but we don't view that as meaningful. What has- Half the country is cheering. I, 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 I'm just putting out the facts, 0.1%, 9.1 versus 9.2. You know, what has mattered more though, to, to your point, Matt, that division has mattered more, right? That it's not just who's in the Oval Office. The market has done better under divided government versus united government, right? And that difference we do see as meaningful though. So divided government markets have appreciated at 10% annualized in the periods that those have existed 
versus 8%. So that's a big difference. That's undeniable. Um, so look, that's the historical baseline. And that's from where we'll start our conversation. And I think um, it's safe to assume that many of our listeners, many investors wouldn't think that, that those facts are the facts, that there's been basically an even return depending on whether there's a Democratic president or a Republican president. You know, one thing that we've also seen is that as, as elections approach, as we get closer to election day, the markets start to move more closely in line with movements in the polls. So given that, we would expect that over the coming weeks, the market moves and the changes in the polls will be more closely aligned, um, certainly more than they were over the beginning portion of this year. And there are some reasons why this election may matter more than others. I think that's that's also safe to say. So, Alex, what are you focusing on at the moment? Yep, Matt, I think you're exactly right um, that this is different. Uh, and I'll echo what Beata said. But I also want to just come back to a comment you made about the polls. I think one of the important lessons from 2016 is be really wary of reading polls with too much importance. Uh, obviously, the surprise outcome of 2016 was a lesson. Um, it wasn't the only one, by the way. If you go back earlier that year, Brexit in Europe and the United Kingdom was a complete surprise. So I think we want to be careful about certainly taking action as a result of polls um, or trying to, to set one belief over another based on polls. But I think back to your question, look, this election focuses on a couple of different things that don't come up every election. We have a healthcare crisis, and, and thank goodness we don't have that every election. We are in recession, and ditto. Thank goodness we don't have that in every election. So I think over the next four years, government policy matters more to the economy than it otherwise would have in a normal environment. Um, and if you think about the differences in, in responses to COVID, the, the, the willingness to spend to stimulate the economy, to continue to support the economy. Uh, you, you really have to think about the differences in the two approaches. And if one of the outcomes results in any kind of significant reduction in government support, that's something that this country can't afford right now. We're still deep in a recession. So counting on a continuation of, of supportive measures, whether they be from a President Trump or from a President Biden, that's a critical component uh, of the election. Thanks, Alex. And I think if we're continuing along the theme that Matt asked about what could be different this time, what else are we keeping our eyes on that's different maybe than what we've seen in history, we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the nature of this election during a healthcare crisis, which is that, we all know this, less people are gonna be voting in person. So we have a lot of potential confusion and time lag around that. We're going to have a high number of absentee and mail-in ballots. We have to accept that it's going to take time to count and potentially recount these ballots. And back to where we started, no matter where we sit in the country, political polarization is off the charts. So it's probably an understatement to say that the nature of how this election will be conducted, therefore, along with that polarization, could clearly set off some fireworks. And what are we keeping our eye on to really kind of ground ourselves in the facts that we're not just being sentiment-driven here? There's one thing that's very notably different that we already see in market structure. 
And that is what the options markets are pricing. The options markets price risk effectively. And what they are telling us today is that volatility, otherwise known as risk, is going to be very high post-November 3rd. And they're saying that really throughout November and even part of December. And so the, the option markets are already assuming that risk will be higher than it would be normally around an election. And in fact, even higher than what we saw in March and absolutely higher than post the 2012 and 16 elections. So I point that out to say that while we're going to talk all about the election outcomes, one of the grounding principles we should have for the rest of this conversation is that we may not know the election outcome, November 3rd, November 4th, and continue to fill in the date. And that's what the option markets are you know, effectively already telling us. That's right. And I think for anybody who uh, has been around for some time, this brings up uh, memories of 2000. You know, the hanging Chad situation that dragged on for, I believe it was a month or so. And just to put a, a, a finer point on, uh, Beata, what you said, I think you're, you're right to bring up the options market. You know, last time I checked, the options market was assuming something like a 5% move on the days around the election. And normally, the market assumes something like 1% or 2% moves on those days, on election days. So significantly higher volatility is, is um, being baked into the markets at this point in time because of all the reasons, Beata, that you pointed out about absentee ballots and, and mail-in ballots. So um, let, let's move our, our focus more to the long term, away from just the next month or so. Alex, let me come back to you. How do we see the election driving the economy. Matt, I would go back to Beata's point about history and the fact that, frankly, who's in the uh, executive seat um, is important, but what's also important is who has the, the Senate and in the legislative branch and the discussion of a divided government. So as we walk through the four outcomes of this election and what it could mean to the economy over the next few years, I want to center on the the differences, not just in the president, but also on the Senate side. We'll assume that the House stays Democrat. If Trump is reelected and the GOP maintains Senate control, I'd call that status quo. I think the the market would, um, you know, you continue to see the economic measures that have been placed for the last four years, continuation of of the uh, tax environment staying the same, all of the policies of deregulation remaining the same. And I think you'd see the associated market reaction. If Trump is elected and the Dem, the Democrats take the Senate, unlikely outcome. I think we can all acknowledge that. It's hard to imagine a, a Trump presidential vote being cast by someone that votes for a Democrat in Senate, but it's, it's an option. I think you're going to see a lot of back and forth. Um, obviously, there's a tremendous amount of disagreement. However, the, the Democrats uh, seem by their language, certainly coming into the election, committed to supporting the economy. And we know President Trump does as well. So I think you, you see a continuation in government support. If Biden is able to defeat Trump in the election, but the GOP remains in a leadership position in the Senate that has uh, probably some negative medium-term consequences, certainly in the short term as well, because there you'd see a scenario where spending is probably a little bit uncertain. Leader McConnell and, and his colleagues probably push a little bit harder to reduce spending at a, at a time, as I mentioned before, that, that probably will be difficult. If we get a blue wave and, and Biden wins and the Democrats take the, the Senate, 
I think you'd see obviously a spending uh, with the backdrop of, of higher taxes. But I think, look, the question about uh, divided government versus uniform is, is especially important. And I think that's the, the maybe the, I don't want to say the most worrisome, but the one that we're watching closely from an outcome standpoint is the combination of, of Biden and the White House and a Republican uh, Senate, because that, that probably creates the most gridlock and at this point keeps the economy from getting that fiscal stimulus that it needs, that it probably will need for a while longer as we continue to work ourselves out from this crisis. That's a great point. I want to reiterate that for all of our uh, listeners. We are at a point in time, given the coronavirus, that the economy either here in the United States and globally is weak and needs help. And whereas normally investors tend to think about gridlock as good, because it keeps Washington, D.C. out of the markets, now gridlock is bad because it makes it more difficult for the economy to get the support, fiscal support specifically, that it needs in order to continue to recover over the period ahead. So you're right to, to point that out. And it's good to just underscore that because that's what the vast majority of investors have in the back of their minds as they think through the four permutations on election day and what that might ultimately mean for the next couple of years. Beata, let me come back to you. Alex laid out the four scenarios, the four permutations. Based on what we're seeing in the markets or the polls, what's more likely at this point? Well, our predictions are with this level of accuracy... No, I'm kidding. I am not going to put out our precise predictions because I'm going to come back to what Alex's point was, that what we predict is not relevant. What the betting markets show is an indicator of where we are. And as um, Alex pointed out earlier, markets start to pay attention to outcomes much, much closer to the election. And that's when our portfolio managers and ourselves will be thinking about strategic and potential uh, tactical positioning. But we have to be very, very careful and, and extremely humble, frankly, about the certainty of any such prediction. Right. So that's why I kind of start with a joking response about our crystal ball. But let me just cite what the betting markets say today. And here, too, we want to be careful not to extrapolate too much. But these are percentages that we have been watching, you know, basically since July. So the current um, numbers uh, favor a, a Biden win, 53% to 47%, right? So this is how likely is one candidate to take office. Now, when we started tracking, really even before the convention, uh, that percentage was wider. That gap between the two was wider. Uh, the probability of a Biden win was 61%. And what we said then was a lot more attention will be paid around the convention. That's when platform development really begins. And then the other overriding theme that we have to be careful of for the remainder of our conversation is that platforms are proposals. Governing is about trade-offs and what's likely to occur. So again, we're gonna talk about what we see in the platforms and the differences, but we wanna be careful in over-extrapolating what that positioning impact will look like to sectors. But that's where the odds are today. So Piata, thanks for quantifying that. And just to make this point again and again, that's just one element of what's gonna happen on election day. That's just the presidency. And as Alex said, we have to, as investors, consider not just who wins the presidency, but also what happens in Congress and specifically in the Senate, because less coordination will not be viewed, we believe, as, as necessarily positive as would be coordination between Senate 
and the presidency. But either way you look at it, I think it's safe to assume that the race is pretty tight at the moment and likely will continue to be through the beginning of November. Let's now um, maybe look at the platforms. Beata, you brought this up, the priorities, the platforms for each of these candidates. Alex, can you walk through some of the priorities and platforms for uh, Biden and for Trump? Uh, sure, Matt. I think you, you have to think of platforms with air quotation marks during the election, right? Their platforms are really more of marketing. They're trying to appeal to an audience and they may or may not be connected to what actually is pushed for uh, once in office. And that could be because they walk things back or because they, they won't get traction for a policy in the final version based on changing winds and the environment. And there's a lot of different factors that could drive changes. But where we're at today, Biden's priorities clearly are stimulus. He wants to turn the economy uh, into growth from recession. That's non-controversial. Infrastructure, he uh, has committed to spending tremendous amounts of capital uh, on infrastructure upgrades and repairs. Now, it's, it's going to be paid for by taxes. That's something that, that typically infrastructure spending goes without controversy. Everyone loves it. It creates jobs and it improves productivity. And, um, but in this case, it's definitely going to be paid for with higher taxes. And then I think based on what's happened in the last 12 months in the country, I, I, there, there will be a focus on inequality and, and social justice. Other things I think you'd see from uh, President Biden administration is certainly an expansion of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, that's something that, that he's referenced in his platform. And I think you'd see an approach on trade that would really try to bring in trade partners as opposed to uh, pushing them. On the Trump side, uh, President Trump has actually been fairly vague in what he would do in a second term. I think he would uh, has, has said that his platform stands on its own. And I think he would use the last four years as an example of what he plans for the next four years. So whether it's keeping the, the individual tax cuts in place that were put in uh, in 2017, or he's continually pushed on this um, cutting payroll tax as a, a give up, looking for Democrats to push on. And he's also likely to continue his trade policy of being aggressive. And whether that's tariffs um, or other pressures. I think you'll see consistency in that side. And even just this morning, he announced that he has a plan that could serve as an alternative to the Affordable Care Act. So I think that would also be a part of a focus for the next four years. So thank you, Alex. And, and those um, are the policy proposals. I think, as uh, you both said, that's just marketing at this point in time. Who knows, ultimately, once you start to legislate what, what actually becomes law. But Beata, given those proposals, given what we know about the last four years and, and um, what Biden might try and accomplish as president, how do we believe the markets might react in one scenario versus another? Well, as we've caveated before, right, we're not talking about a one-day reaction. We're talking about a reaction over time once policies are developed and proposed. But if we just want to kind of categorize responses based on the likelihood of change, and the likelihood of fiscal stimulus, right? Back to our earlier conversations, a lot of themes are flowing through here. We set up that obviously we're tracking four scenarios, but I'm gonna comment on two scenarios in particular. And the reason I'm gonna do that is because those two scenarios we think have wider outcomes than the other two remaining scenarios. And both of those scenarios hinge around the GOP 
holding the Senate. And of course, one of those is with Trump in the White House, and the other one is with Biden in the White House. So let me tackle the first with the GOP hold on the Senate and Trump retaining control of the Oval Office. So what that does is, as Alex set up, is it you know very likely takes a reversal of the corporate tax cuts off the table. And potentially, with Republicans controlling legislative branch and executive branch, we think they would come around to more stimulus, but looking at it through a different lens. So again, that market concern about whether that fiscal stimulus would come through, we think it does come through, but in a you know potentially lighter form. That should be a benefit to markets. Um, infrastructure plan may happen, but far less likely in that setting. So that's probably a net positive in terms of corporate earnings and market impact. So again, holding with the scenario of a GOP Senate, but with Biden in the White House. Now, Alex had referenced this earlier. This would probably be a net negative on corporate earnings because we think that gridlock um, and that inability in all likelihood to pass stimulus, as we've already seen having a tough time passing stimulus for another round recently, is indicative of that potential gridlock. Also, an infrastructure plan would be harder to get through. And again, it makes the corporate tax hikes on this side actually harder to pass. So those are the two outcomes where you know GOP Senate is what's in common, who's in the Oval Office is what's different, and one, at least in the short order, could be more positive, and the other one could be more negative to corporate earnings in particular. You know, Beata, when you talk about government spending, it brings up this idea of inflation, and I think that's been a concern, not just the last year, by the way, but for the last 10 years, that when are we going to get inflation? When, when is the final bill going to come for our spending on the part of the government? And I think in either a, a status quo scenario or a blue wave scenario, inflation expectations will pick up due to an increased spending. And what we think would worry the market even more in terms of inflation is if we have a new Fed chair. I think that, that you see Chair Powell and President Trump not necessarily in agreement uh, most of the time. And when Mr. Powell's term is over in a couple of years, it would not surprise anyone to see a new Fed chair, somebody that would be more willing to embrace President Trump's zero interest rate policy, potentially negative interest rates. And that is a real concern around what could inflation look like for the next four years. Having said that, again, we've been waiting for inflation the last 10 years, but this, the, the clock may finally strike midnight uh, over the next couple of years. Let me just go back to what um, I said earlier, and, and it has been reiterated a couple of times, that um, the, who ultimately ends up in the White House, meaning which party, has very little predictability as to what ultimately will happen at the markets, at the market level. That being said, there is an influence on sectors. We tend to see differentials in sectors depending on either Republican or Democrat or certain one candidate over another. So as we think about the next four years or, or even just the next couple of years, what are our research conclusions telling us about what sectors might be impacted in different ways based on a different candidate winning the election? So Matt, let me start on, on that one. And I'm going to use infrastructure as my example, because as I said, everybody loves infrastructure spending. But there are real differences depending on who's in charge. So if you think about either Democratic leadership or Republican leadership, the outcomes are different for specific types of companies. If you're a construction or engineering firm, 
you're good either way. You're, you're going to benefit if the Democrats are in charge or the Republicans are in charge with their infrastructure spending plans. But think about it if you're a renewable energy company. Clearly, the Democratic plan is more likely to help you than a Republican plan. And on the other side, if you're an oil and gas company, the Republican plan is more likely to help you. And even within the same industry, the effects could be different. Imagine if we get a high-speed rail program as part of an infrastructure plan. That's great if you're a company who's putting the rails down or, or making the trains or even running the trains. But if you're an airline and you're going to start to lose customers because of increased competition, that's a negative. So what you have to do is really look through all of the permutations on both sides uh, and, and run all those scenarios knowing that, as I said, polls are irrelevant largely. They they're, they're certainly have less value today than they did years ago. So you've got to run them for two different big picture scenarios. Yep. And um, that same tension that you laid out in infrastructure, Alex, you could equally say applies to healthcare because that's an area where we really see divergence. So health insurers tied to Medicare, Medicaid spending are much more likely to benefit from a Biden expansion of the ACA and government programs. But on drug pricing, you look at that and you say both parties and in fact, both candidates have laid out plans to keep drug prices in check. Um, so in that sense, the policy proposals are similar, but in the past, uh, we've looked at this and thought that the Democrats' plans could have a bigger and broader impact on drug pricing than Republicans' plans. So for investors in pharma companies, that's a key issue to keep in mind for positioning. I'd say another area that people often talk about uh, around elections is, is technology, and certainly for this election, uh, given the, the performance of the big technology companies and their history, their recent history of having to testify in front of Congress. You know, people wonder about regulation and think it would be universally bad for tech. I'd say it's not so clear cut. Um, you know, some companies could have certainly real issues if they are split up or if there's additional regulation on their on their businesses that would hit their profitability, while other companies probably wouldn't see any meaningful difference and still others might actually benefit from either better incentives inside their segments or even better market appreciation because the value of each of their businesses is higher in different pieces than it is in aggregate. So technology is, is another area that certainly will have implications depending on which way this election goes. And Matt, uh, let's pivot to the last piece of the election puzzle, and that's everyone's favorite subject, taxes. Tax rates are near historical lows. Exemptions and other exclusions are near historical highs. And so I guess, Alex, with that, you know, what to do? You know, what's the advice, as we've often talked to our clients, about what to do given those, those low rates and the high exemptions over the next couple of months? Right. Well, I would say from a wealth planning standpoint, it's a great opportunity for tax management. If we have a Biden presidency, some windows that will likely close. And if you're an estate planning attorney, you'll be very busy in November and December uh, if Biden wins. So this is a great time for investors to talk to their financial advisors about how to mitigate the tax impact on their wealth. 
And then on my end, I would jump in and say, when you think about portfolio implementation and what potential changes we could be making as investors, I would segregate the response into two different levels. One is the focus on risk management. We talked about the options markets and what they're, what they're implying today. We are very closely watching that along with numerous other factors to determine our course, which again will become much clearer in October than it is in these early days in mid-September. But that's something we're going to keep a very close eye on and implement change if we deem necessary. And then on the second level, I would say there's the notion of security selection and sector selection. And Alex and I gave you a couple of examples across portfolios where you could have very different positioning depending on outcomes. And we're already seeing our portfolio managers anticipating and positioning for this broad array of possible outcomes. Again, markets pay more attention, much closer to the election, so it's too early to reposition. Uh, but we, we are, we're very nimble in terms of the portfolio management teams, and we would expect that there would be shifts across sectors and securities. I know many of you out there listening are, are probably asking or have already asked of your advisor, what should I be doing? Should we be making changes inside my portfolio to the stock bond mix or otherwise? And um, I guess like the wealth decision that Alex talked about, the investment decision is very bespoke. It's idiosyncratic. It's particular to, to each of you. So. Um, we can't at this level make a determination about de-risking or up-risking or getting into or out of a certain sector. As Beata said, the portfolio management teams will be making adjustments between you know now and, and uh, through the election as they deem appropriate. But larger decisions around asset allocation really need to come through the advice that you all have with your financial advisors. So I think that's the best and most important advice that we have throughout this entire conversation is that um, you know at the end of the day, we are all long-term investors and the asset allocation should be appropriate given that, um, that fact. So guys, we're going to have to leave it there. Biana and Alex, thanks once again for joining us on The Pulse. Our pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't yet subscribed to our podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts to subscribe and to rate us. And also, please email us with any of your thoughts or questions or feedback to insights at Bernstein.com. And be sure to find us on Twitter at Bernstein PWM. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bernstein. Making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.